Today, I want to introduce to you just briefly um, Larry Alex Taunton. Like I said before, he's an author, he's a speaker, a columnist. Uh, he's the executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation based in Birmingham, Alabama, where he currently resides. He's a member of the Shades Mountain Baptist Church, which some of you may know uh, well in Birmingham. They're a, a prominent church that has had influence in my life. Their former pastor was one of my professors at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, he's been on several TV shows, been interviewed um, by Chris Matthews on MSNBC, he's been on CNN and, and several uh, news organizations. Um, their, their mission of Fixed Point Foundation is to engage a, an increasingly secular culture with a Christian voice and a Christian message. So I think you'll be blessed to hear uh, what he has to say today. To introduce his message this morning, we're going to see a video clip about uh, what he's going to be speaking about today. So let's watch this clip. Pulled up to the Tom and Jerry. Um, I was on my way out of town, so I was getting gas. Pretty afternoon. We were just headed to, uh, you know, headed to some yard sales, right, and we had just left my house. I lived down the street from the scene, and uh, we were in front of Tom and Jerry's at that intersection that I walk through almost every day. I was sitting in my car with the door open and kind of just looking around. We were looking at each other, saying, you know, let's go eat lunch here after we finish. And I happened to glance over at the intersection that's just right there. I feel like I saw the cyclist entering the intersection in, in my peripheral vision. And I think I sort of stuck looking over there because I saw the cyclist coming down the hill really fast. And as soon as we said that, we heard a really loud crash. I just remember like brakes, mm -hmm. brakes and a huge crash. Which was like a car crash, just bang. And then I think I remember hearing the cyclist head hit the car. More than anything, I just remember seeing how high he went into the air. He went from going forward to going up, way up, very high in the air. Just seeing this guy fly through the air, it took me a while to even realize that was a person. It just looked like a rag doll going through the air and then just plummet down. And I didn't see the guy hit the ground, I just knew that he had and you could hear it. Crashing onto the ground, like crashing and sliding onto the ground. It was scary. He just kind of landed like a sack of potatoes and slid down the street a little, a little ways. Kind of facing me, but just not moving at all. I was just frozen and I was like shaking. Emily just started screaming at me, really, just stop the car, stop the car. I remember immediately being surprised that his head wasn't, was still intact. I mean, it was that bad. I was in shock. My first immediate thought was, oh my God, that man's dead. And I just remember kind of standing there, just becoming so emotional, because I didn't know if I was looking at somebody who had just died. I picked up and fumbled with my phone, and I was trying to dial 911. I kept getting a busy signal. I, I remember grabbing his wrist and trying to feel a pulse and couldn't feel anything, feeling of his neck and couldn't feel anything. I could see the guy lying on the ground, and I could see another guy over him. And then Austin ran there, and I just kind of Right when I started doing chest compressions is when the first bystander came up to help. When I ran over, the um, one guy was performing CPR, and then he sort of coughed and started breathing. All we can do is call 911 and stabilize his head. It kind of felt like time slowed down. I just stood at the guy's head and hold it basically in place and keep the airway open. That's when he started moaning. The only word I can think of is pain for that sound. That's the sound that a person makes when they're dying. Just intense, intense pain. Just, I never heard anything like it. 
in my life, almost like a wounded animal, just a very um, raw sound. When he started making that noise, that was awful. And this thick, long, I mean, I didn't know that you could live with that much blood, you know, blood outside of your body just trickling, I mean, mm -hmm. thick, just slowly seeping out, just like syrup. It really struck me that it broke the carbon fiber bicycle in half. Just kind of a mangled mix of metal. The car looked like a tree had fallen on it. I see these teeth that I think are missing in the mouth because there's just, there seems to be just no jaw there almost. It's, it was incredible. It was really traumatic. It made me feel helpless because I could not, you know, just useless and helpless because I couldn't do anything more for this guy. I think it was probably around 10 to 15 minutes from when I arrived and an ambulance was able to get there. The injuries were very extensive. They included rib fractures of every single rib on the right side of his body, bruising of his lung underneath those. He had fractures of his shoulder blade and also some of the attachments to it closer up top to where the collarbone is. Face fractures, hand fractures, multiple spine fractures. This person could not have lived through this. I just had to call my family afterwards and um, tell them what I had just seen. I thought because he hit his head so hard on the ground that the, that blood would start pooling in the brain and put too much pressure on the brain. I thought he would die from brain damage. And if you imagine two liters of blood out of the five total that you normally have in your body, you're talking around about half of his total body volume was bleeding into his chest. He's not going to make it. All of a sudden, it just kind of seemed like out of nowhere there was a nun there. There's actually a nun that was praying over us. and You know, I, I'm not even sure where she was coming from. She had her rosary in her hand and she was praying. It was almost surreal, like you could almost see in a movie. At that moment is when I um, looked up and took a picture, just because I take pictures of everything. And you almost had the leadership of the nun. People were kind of in a loose circle and just staring at the cyclist and just silently praying. And the nun was the closest and really you could tell putting thought into this and just saying every prayer she knew. And then finally when he came around, I kind of felt relief that he would survive somehow. And then I remember that first little glimmer uh, of, of thinking, I, how could he even be doing this? He, he made a joke that he was certain the person that hit him was a Muslim. And uh, at that point, I was like, because I didn't even know a sentence could come out of the face that I was looking at. It's a miracle that man's alive, I think was my exact words. It's a miracle that man's alive. A miracle. He was dead when, I, when, I, when he hit the ground. When I went to see him in the hospital, and he was, they were getting him out of the bed. I knew that was the turning point to where as long as we continue to push him and he continued to push himself, that we could get through this together. And I looked at his face and I saw him stand and, and we began to talk about football and, 
And I thought to myself, this is like talking to Lazarus. I mean, this, this is, uh, I cannot believe you're alive and it looks like you, you may actually survive. Today's message, <clears throat> why does God allow suffering is a deeply personal question for me. For others, it's an intellectual riddle to be solved. These are almost always people who have not suffered themselves. This morning, I'm not here to unravel some theological Gordian knot. Suffering is a very complex issue. There's suffering from evil and suffering from natural causes. There's physical suffering and there is emotional suffering. There's suffering for believers and there's suffering for unbelievers. There are few tidy answers and if the greatest theologians could not solve it, I can't either. That said, I think I can offer you something of immense value this morning. I say that it's personal for me because I knew a kind of suffering that is the result of evil from an early age. And more recently, I suffered an awful accident that had nothing to do with moral choices. Furthermore, my remarkable daughter, Sasha, some of you may be familiar with her from my book, The Grace Effect, she has known greater suffering than anyone I know. And providing her with something substantive that she can hold on to is hardly a trivial question for me. So the issue of suffering is very personal indeed. Add to this the fact that there are others here I know who have experienced great pain. And in this con a congregation of this size, there are undoubtedly many of you here who have suffered or who are suffering still. So it is with these things in mind that I speak to you this morning. Now as I begin, there are a few things that must be understood from the outset. First, I presuppose the existence of God in this particular discussion. Um, as I will uh, unpack, I don't think you can really understand the problem of suffering in your, this life if you do not believe in the Judeo-Christian God. Also, I'm speaking chiefly as such, I'm speaking chiefly to Christians today. This doesn't mean that if you're not a Christian, you can't benefit from today's presentation. Hopefully you do, but for you to fully get what I'm talking about, you must know Jesus Christ. Finally, evil and suffering are separate questions. This is because while evil brings suffering, not all suffering is specifically caused by evil. I mean, it is in the general sense of the fall, but, you know, the fellow who, who, uh, who hit me wasn't an especially evil man. It was, just a, it was just an error. So the question, why does God allow evil, is a different, different message than why does God allow suffering. It seems to me that a good place to begin is with my own story. Now, as you watch this video, um, that, that's telling the story of, uh, of my own accident. Um, it was about a year and a half ago. I was, um, I'm an avid cyclist, or was, and, uh, and I was cycling through Birmingham on a Saturday afternoon, beautiful, beautiful day, and uh, as I'm riding through a green light, a man jumps the light, I never saw him, and he, he hit me head on, and I went through into his windshield, ricocheted off the windshield, and as they described, um, landed on the ground um, some distance away. And um, when I came to in the ambulance, I recall um, 
briefly that I could just barely see and understand a, uh, a nurse or an EMT, a woman, who was uh, shouting to me, stay with me, stay with me, look at me, look at me. And as blood was pooling into my eyes, I, I lost consciousness again. And then I came to um, in, the, uh, in the emergency room where they were placing me on a table that's the kind of thing where you would put your meat. And um, it was there that uh, um, they began asking me, trying to ask me questions and to determine the degree of, uh, of my injuries. And at the end of the day, um, I had uh, 39 broken bones, um, 19 uh, broken vertebrae, all the ribs on my right side were broken and skull fracture and facial fractures. and. Um, we joked as a staff that you could touch my hand because it wasn't broken. My, my, my left hand was, but my right hand um, was, was not. And um, I had uh, more than 50 breaks in all. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a line um, quoting the, uh, the, the now famous Hugh Glass, the man whose story is told in The Revenant, not a movie I would recommend that you watch, but where in the commercials he says this, I ain't afraid to die no more. I already done it. Well, I can relate to Hugh Glass's comment. Um, I surely can, and uh, um, all the more so when if the witness in this video is right, if he's correct, that I was in fact dead when he arrived on the scene and wasn't breathing and had no pulse and that he in fact um, revived me. I, I wasn't conscious, so I cannot dispute his claim. But as I'm laying in the hospital bed in ICU and feeling just crushed, crushed and where people are are um, very hurriedly working around me in an effort to save my life and where there was much doubt for days to come as to whether or not I would live I myself I was thinking of many things you in such times you think of family and friends and um, but I will tell you that your mind moves towards the mesophysical. Your, your mind moves towards the, the deeper theological questions. And, uh, and I, I will tell you this, at no point did I ever find myself doubting God or doubting God's love or worrying about what would happen to me should I have died. Indeed, I, I spent a lot of time cracking jokes and trying to reassure my family and friends that I was okay. I mean, of course, I wasn't okay, but I, I, um, I meant that I just wanted to reassure them that, uh, that I personally was not suffering from doubts, however much I might be suffering physically and as I laid there in that bed and where even the pillow became an instrument of torture okay, when you lay in a bed that long and you can't move your head you know my neck was broken in three places and where you cannot move your head you're, you, you the back of my skull would begin to hurt so badly and uh, I don't know, several months after I was out of the hospital, I went back to see my nurses and to thank them for their good work. And one of them said to me, she said, it was so sweet. You would ask us to lift your head and to scratch it. <laughs> and it was just to get the blood flowing because I was just in so much pain. And the worst times for me were particularly at night. 
Some of you might be able to relate to this, but during the day I had the distraction of people talking to me and physicians and nurses and technicians and seemed like stable fulls of, uh, of uh, medical personnel in and out of the room. At night, you're alone. And I would try to keep people talking and to distract me as long as possible, but soon they would fade. And I would find myself searching the scriptures. I would hold, I'd have this one hand up and searching, particularly the Psalms, searching for something that I could relate to and that I could hold on to. And I found myself particularly comforted by the doctrine of sovereignty. Now, this is a doctrine that is frequently spoken of in very, very um, unfavorable terms. The idea of God's power, of his might, of him being in control of all things has been spoken of by some even as an evil doctrine. But I will tell you that when you, your life hangs in the balance when awful things have occurred in your life, when you are struggling for answers, there is no greater doctrine, no more comforting doctrine than the knowledge that our loving God is in control of all things. How I would cling to that knowledge, that while I myself did not understand what was going on in my life, it could not, and indeed I cannot tell you how many people wanted to come and explain to me my suffering. There's little that was more annoying than that. Well-intentioned pastors, friends, others who were prepared to tell me why I was suffering. And I thought, you can't know that. You can't know fully the reason why I'm suffering. Now we see but through a glass darkly. Then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know in full. This is, it's like an iceberg. There's just, just a, some of it that's above the water. We see bits of how God uses suffering. But I don't think we know fully what's going on until one day he'll pull back the veil. And then we see what's beneath the water. And I say an iceberg because, you know, an iceberg only reveals one ninth of its total mass. There's much more going on in God's will. And I was prepared to accept that. Indeed, didn't feel that I needed to know. What I needed to know was that my God loved me and that he was in control. And I had assurance of both things. You know, it's interesting to note that the Judeo-Christian explanation of evil and suffering alone, among all the many religious explanations of the world, maintains that God is all-powerful. Others make God out to be less than God, a kind of superhero who is occasionally caught off guard and who is not all-knowing and all-powerful. He's like Captain America. A good guy, well-intentioned, but sometimes where he's saving someone over here, something else goes on over there that he didn't see and he didn't know coming, know was coming. But that's not, that's not the biblical explanation of God. God is 
portrayed as all-powerful, as all-knowing. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42.2 says that no purpose of God's can be thwarted. This means that nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in this life that he does not cause or allow. And some would say that that distinction is just, is just semantics. It is not. It is a significant distinction. Perhaps this unsettles you, but I would have it no other way. I like knowing that my life is in God's hands. And I will tell you that having survived that event, it fills me with a special kind of mission and joy to know that God, in a sense, resurrected me off of that tarmac because he had determined I am not finished with you. And that's true for you. You're here because he has not finished with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that should fill you with a sense of mission. Perhaps the great commission. I also trusted in the fact that and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. This verse is a cultural favorite and is much misquoted and misapplied. I'll hear unbelievers say, well, you know, all things work together for good. And I'll say, not for you. You don't get that promise unless you are a child of God. Unless you are called according to his purpose. Bad things might happen to you and they might lead to worse things if you don't know him. What a, what a reassuring verse that in the midst of the winds that blow against our lives... That even the wretched things God can use for his honor and for his glory. And does, as the Bible testifies again and again in the lives of his servants. I was also confronted with the fact, the reality, that without him I can do nothing. This is John 15, 5. Hebrews 1.3 says that he sustains the universe by the word of his power. Acts 17.25 says that he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I'm a proud man. I'm used to being physically strong, self-reliant, self-motivated, driven, in control of my own environment, and then BAM! I'm in control of nothing, and I can't even lift my head off of a pillow. I had to be wheeled around, helped everywhere. I lost 40 pounds in about three weeks. My jaw was shattered and wired shut for six weeks. I could only take milkshakes and things of that nature. The female members of my staff 
had to carry my stuff. This was a special humiliation. That actually was meant to be funny. Without him, we can do nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a spiritual truth. Now, I, I experienced in a, in a physical reality. But what Jesus means by that, that is that your regeneration, your spiritual regeneration, it, it depends upon him. But in a very real sense, he gives life and breath and everything and sustains even the universe. Without him, we can do nothing. I also learned that spiritual attacks come at the lowest points of our suffering and involve clever strategy. I recall one night, I was put on all these heavy painkillers, um, oxycodone, um, neurotin, and uh, morphine, all at the same time. And there were occasions where my pain level would feel like it's a nine, and that would bring it down to a six. And one night, um, we, I was, had been released, I was at home, and um, I was sleeping in a recliner because I couldn't go up the stairs and I couldn't lie flat. And my sweet wife would sleep on the couch next to me. She refused to go to the bedroom. She would sleep on the couch. And I felt really bad about that. She's sleeping on the couch. I thought she should be in a bed. But I had to have my medicine every so, so many hours and I, apparently I would wake her up moaning. I was in so much pain. And so I told her one day, bravely, Tonight, we'll go upstairs. And she's like, I don't know if that's a good idea. And I said, no, 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 we will. It's okay. I can, I can do it. And so she helps me upstairs. And I sit on the side of the bed. And she says, um, I'm going to go into the bathroom and brush my teeth and take off my makeup and such. And then when I come back, I'll help you lay down. And in the moments when she was gone, it felt like the devil himself came and sat down right next to me and put his arm around me and said, you know, I would never let one of my children suffer like this. You believe in a sovereign God, Larry? Interesting. So do I. The pain was so crushing Tears were welling in my eyes and my wife came back and she knew that something had changed. She could feel the temperature change in the room and I couldn't lift my head. And so she knelt down in front of me. So she looked up in my face. She said, what's wrong? Something's happened. And I said, I, well, I don't know if I can do this. Why is God allowing me to suffer like this? He's in control of all things. Why doesn't he end this? I learned as a result of this, such questions led me to search God out. And I felt his presence in a way that I had never experienced in my life before. 
I learned that there's mystery in suffering or suffering and in God's purposes in general. If you need to understand all things in order to believe, he wouldn't be God. Meaning you, we often seek to create a God that is in our own image. We seek to scale him down, to bring him down from the heavens. But scripture tells us his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's as high above us as the heavens are uh, 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 above, uh, uh, above us all. He's infinite. We are finite. There's an arrogance in seeking and demanding to know everything regarding our God. A verse that became particularly um, meaningful to me is found in John 6, 66. Jesus has preached a really hard sermon in which he speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Metaphor, of course. But not everybody got that. And this crowd of 5,000 that he had just fed says, we want to hear no more of this. And then they leave. Jesus had a potential megachurch. And they all left because he preached a bad sermon, apparently. Of course he didn't. But he preached a hard truth. And then he turns to the disciples and he says, and what about you? Like, are you guys going to stay? And I love Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? What I love about Peter's response there is that Peter wasn't saying, you know, I don't know about these guys, and certainly not all of them, but I got everything you just said. I understood all of it. No, I think that Peter is in some sense acknowledging I'm not sure I've fully understood everything you said either. I think some of that went straight over my head too. But I trust you and I love you. And I know that somehow it's true. And what is the alternative? What is plan B? Were I to leave, to whom shall I go? There's no alternative but you. And therefore, I choose to believe, even as it relates to some of these difficult things that I don't fully understand. What a wonderful response. I know you're God. I know you're good. I know your character. And therefore, I trust. God exercises his divine prerogative. In John 5, he heals one man and not a multitude. It's interesting to note there that it says there are a multitude of lame, blind, and paralyzed. And Jesus comes and he chooses one. In Daniel 3, he saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But even they acknowledge that while God can save, he may choose not to. Consequently, we must be humble in our suffering. To think that I can question God or that I can see the totality of his design is arrogant. I must reconcile myself with the fact that he is infinite and I am not. Also, you can't understand suffering in this life, as I said at the beginning, unless you know God. 
unless you know something about him. You simply can't. You might face the pain nobly and you might have some profound insights into suffering, but you can't see the bigger picture unless you know him. If you know the God of the Bible, then you will learn that from his perspective, dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Let me repeat, dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what, um, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Matthew 9.42 adds this, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. From a biblical perspective, spiritual death is the worst thing that can happen to you. Now, atheist critics of our faith and sometimes Christians who don't understand this principle and I hear atheists essentially say things like this to me or to audiences. Do you believe that God is real? Come on, do you? Yes. Thank you. Do you believe that God is good? Yes. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Yes. Now I've got you. Do you believe that God allows suffering? See, now, now the atheist critic would say, I, I just got you right there. You believe he's real. You believe, you believe that he's good. You believe that he's sovereign. And now the coup de grace. You believe that he allows suffering. There is a tension between this notion that he is good and that he is sovereign and that he allows suffering. They do not go together. They cannot go together. Now, in trying to respond to this in an intelligible way to some of my atheist friends or critics, I landed on this as a way of explaining it to them. The reason why you think there's a tension between his sovereignty and his goodness and the fact that he allows suffering is because you are a product of an Epicurean culture. Now let me explain what I mean by that. The Epicureans were a philosophical sect that we sometimes confuse with hedonists. You know, hedonists were all about the, uh, are all about the excitement of the senses. But this is not, this is in physical pleasure. This is not what Epicureans were about. Epicureans were chiefly about the avoidance of pain. So it comes, it comes at the problem from another direction, about the avoidance of pain and about comfort. Now, if you try to understand God through an Epicurean lens, you will not understand anything of his purposes in Scripture. When you try to impose that grid on Scripture, you run into problems. Because you immediately see that's, that doesn't seem to be what he's about. But you see, you and I are the products of, of, of an Epicurean culture. And as products of an Epicurean culture, this is the way we think. So the result is, this is why the, the, the health and wealth, the prosperity gospel has made so much ground in our culture and in the West today. Because there's this kind of underlying premise that if, if you are good, good things will happen to you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a kind of Eastern spirituality that's penetrated Christianity. It's called karma. It's not Christian. 
in some of these circles, when someone does suffer, people don't acknowledge it because they think that person has sinned or they don't have enough faith. It's nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, our God is not an Epicurean God. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Nobel Prize winning Russian novelist said, the meaning of earthly existence lies not as we've grown used to thinking, that is in prospering, but in the development of the soul. God is chiefly concerned with the development of the soul. As I close this morning, I would want to remind you of a couple of things as it relates to this. God is present with you in your suffering, whether he chooses to deliver you from it according to your own desires or not. Sometimes we think that because he hasn't answered the way we want him to, that it he means he's distant. He's not there. He's not present with us in it. I knew God was with me the whole way, and he remains with me. I, I continue to have loads of side effects. I'm in pain most of the time. Why doesn't God remove it? I've accepted the fact that it just does not seem to be at this time in his will. But I take comfort in the fact, as should you, in the resurrection. Because, as I said, as God, in a sense, resurrected me from um, uh, massive pain and death in this life, whether he chooses to do that for you or not regarding your suffering, he does ultimately through the resurrection. The promise of the resurrection is the answer to the problem of pain and suffering. Let me repeat that, the resurrection. Because one day, Scripture tells us, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That day is coming, ladies and gentlemen. It's coming for you. In the meantime, take great confidence and comfort in his sovereignty and in the knowledge that he loves you and he has called you according to his purposes and even if you can't fully see what those are it's enough to know that he is in it and that he is in charge and that scripture itself has not failed you on this point let us pray our Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for those here who are suffering. Father, I pray that you would comfort them, that you would remind them that you love them, that you would remove from them the great anxieties, the fear, perhaps the doubt, and remind them, Father, that you are the God indeed who is there. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for Nathan, his family, the ministry of this church. I pray that it would be a, a, a light to this city, to this community. And Father, that you would use it greatly to advance your kingdom. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.